hppodcraft.com. Miss Adela Strangeworth stepped daintily along Main Street on her way to the grocery. The sun was shining, the air was fresh and clear after the night's heavy rain, and everything in Miss Strangeworth's little town looked washed and bright. Miss Strangeworth took deep breaths and thought that there was nothing in the world like a fragrant summer day. She knew everyone in town, of course. She was fond of telling strangers, tourists who sometimes passed through the town and stopped to admire Miss Strangeworth's roses, that she had never spent more than a day outside this town in all her long life. She was seventy-one, Miss Strangeworth told the tourists, with a pretty little dimple showing by her lip, and she sometimes found herself thinking that the town belonged to her. My grandfather built the first house on Pleasant Street, she would say, opening her blue eyes with the wonder of it. This house right here. My family has lived here for better than a hundred years. My grandmother planted these roses, and my mother tended them, just as I do. Oh, isn't that lovely? It's just the sweetest thing. That was the opening of Shirley Jackson's <laughs> The Possibility of Evil. We're good. <laughs> There's not a question. <laughs> no, I'm just confused because that, the beginning was so kind and sweet and beautiful. Yeah. There's a possibility of evil. Oh, no. Oh, no. We're going to talk about that possibility of evil here on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Fife. And I'm Chris Lackey. We're here at HPPodcraft.com and Patreon. What do you think of that reader, huh? Whoa. <laughs> That was making his return to the show, Edward E. French. Yeah! Oscar-nominated and Emmy Award-winning special effects makeup artist Mr. French is also an amazing voice actor. Yeah. You can hear his full reading of this story on his YouTube page. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't read it, you could actually stop this show right now, go over there, listen to the whole thing. We'll link out in the show notes to get you to that page. Yeah. You'll remember him. He did that in, in uh, Amundsen's Ted. Oh, yeah. So good. He's got lots of great weird fiction readings on his page. He actually also recorded the story uh, The Witch by Shirley Jackson. Oh, nice. That's also on there if you want to check it out. Please go check it all out. You won't be disappointed. I love him. He is a fantastic reader. You know what I'm excited about that's coming up here? What's that? Necronomicon! That's right. It's happening in August, huh? August 22nd through the 25th in Providence, Rhode Island. We're going to be there. This will be our fourth time, I believe, going to the convention. Is it four times? It's four times. We're going to be doing a live show. We're going to have a little party yes. for our 10th anniversary. 10th anniversary. anniversary. Those details are still coming together. Yes, yeah. But I'm super excited to go out there once again. You know, I love Providence, and I love the convention. They do such an amazing job all the time. Who else is going to be? Oh, my God. Show? Well, first of all, friend of the show, Kenneth Height. He is one of the awesome people that's going to be at this convention. He's got lots of stuff going on. I'm very excited about seeing Ken. Well, he's going to be a guest of honor there, but he's also going to do our live show with he us. He is indeed. That is correct. And we are going to be doing a, a Lovecraft story, a Lovecraft Ciametti story. Mm -hmm. show. We have to go through them and decide which one we're going to do. But we will be getting back to our roots and doing some Lovecraft. Actual Lovecraft. Yeah. Well, Lovecraft yeah. watered down well, with some yeah. A collaboration. Yeah, collaboration. Peter Cannon is also going to be there. He is a Lovecraft oh. scholar. He's written a bunch of stuff. H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. A volume in Twain's U.S. author series. He's done the chronology out of time. Dates in the fiction of H.P. Lovecraft. Lovecraft and Long Memories, Recollections of Frank Belknap Long, a memoir, lots of great stuff. Now, somebody I'm actually really excited to see, and I'm hoping I can meet and chat with, Victor Laval. Oh, cool. Victor Laval, who wrote The Ballad of Black Tom, which is one of the right. more recent fictions that I totally was into. It is a retelling of the story of the Horrid Hook, the H.P. Lovecraft story. 
but from the mm-hmm. perspective of one of the cultists. It's really good. It totally changes everything. Makes it super interesting. I dug it. It's it's a great read. And that was speaking of Shirley Jackson, winner of a Shirley Jackson award. Awesome. And so you know we're tying it all together here. We are. We're getting it all tied. tied. Uh, Making it into a sweet little package. <laughs> uh, also, the are the poet laureate is going to be Sonia Taff and uh, Molly Tanzer will be there, author of Creatures of Will and Temper, Creatures of Want and Ruin, and the forthcoming book Creatures of Charm and Hunger. She also did the weird Western book Vermilion, which was uh, a voted best book on NPR and IO9 in 2015. So you know, lots of really cool stuff that's going on there. There's going to be a ton of other people there. I know the HP Lovecraft Historical Society is going to be there, and we're going to be there, which is the number we're one reason why you should come. is going to be there. Matt Barisi is going to be there. Oh. He kind of has to be just because he lives there. He lives there now, yes. <laughs> but uh, I am very much more, uh, looking forward to seeing him as well. Yes, and hey, look, I know Chad and I get really busy at these things, but please come up and talk to us. That is why we're there. We've had yes. some people like see us from a distance and they go, oh, you're busy, so we didn't want to talk to you. Forget that. Push those chumps out of the way and come talk to us. Yeah, please do. And if those chumps are other fans, they're not chumps. They're awesome people. But if if they're just like my mom <laughs> is there, just knock her down. Get get her out of the way. Hey, come on. I'm don't. kidding. But my mom and dad will be there as always. Oh, they're going to be there oh, as well? Oh, yeah. They love going to Necronomicon. Oh, that's great. They're nuts like that. And I'm so excited. Hopefully you all will join us at Necronomicon for this great live show and our 10th anniversary party. Have you read uh, much Shirley Jackson before? I have not read any Shirley Jackson before, which is a crime ah. and a travesty. I know you read The Haunting of... The Haunting of Hill House. House. Yeah, yes. it's it's such a great book and we flirted with doing that on the show yes. at some point. I'm sure we'll get to it, but this is the actual first time we've done a Shirley Jackson story at all. Yeah, I, I was Why, surprised by that. You picked this one. Well, I picked this one because Joyce Carol Oates, mm-hmm. you know her, she's awesome, who's also a fan of Lovecraft, described this story as terrifying, and it is generally regarded as one of Jackson's best works. So I was like, okay, yeah, let's give this a go. I know she wrote The Lottery, which is a story I read in school, and I remember that story giving me pause. Did you you guys read The Lottery? I read The Lottery in school, Yeah. yeah. And I know what that was about, and I, I'm like, that's not weird at all. That's just kind of sad. Yeah, it is sad. <laughs> that's a good way to describe it. And I wasn't sure if this one is was weird or not, but I figured, you know, let's roll the dice. Let's see what happens. Well, this one gets taught in school quite a bit as well, but somehow I missed it. Me too. Over the years in all my literature classes, this was my first time reading it. You seemed a little underwhelmed by it, but I, I loved this story. Really? Yeah. Oh, man, yeah. I went nuts for it. I read it over again right away as soon as I was done with it I went back I th- and reread it it's really well written but it was just kind of sad and kind of horrible like she's a vile woman and it makes me feel uneasy thinking that these people are out in our society well I think oh man I just felt really current actually to me I don't know well, well let's we'll get to talk that about that second. at the end yeah yeah, yeah. Let, let's talk about the author first yes the woman the legend that is Shirley Jackson she was born in 1916 in San Francisco she grew up in the posh neighborhood of Burlingame Uh, She had a strained relationship with her mother, who didn't seem really into the idea of being a mother, I guess. And the fact that her daughter was a nerd who wrote stories all the time. Nerd! (laughs) I could certainly relate to that. That's what her mom said all the time. Her mom called her a nerd all the time. Did you find that in the official biography? I read between the lines. Her family (laughs) moved to New York, and she went to college at the University of Rochester. She didn't like it there, but moved over to Syracuse University and found her groove. She got her bachelor's degree in journalism. She got involved with the Syracuse Literary Magazine and had her first published story, Janice, 
and that, and that was about a girl who was uh, contemplating suicide or trying to commit suicide. At college, she met her future husband and was married in 1940. Sounds like he was a bit of a jerk from what I read. He was a college professor and slept with his students, got Jackson to have an open relationship. <laughs> Which I don't right, think I'm she sure was she, really... I'm sure that was her idea. Yeah, I don't think she was really up for that. Uh, he also controlled their finances, which was kind of messed up because she, you know, eventually made way more money than him, but he still doled it out. Like, so the money came in and he controlled all of it. So he seemed kind of like a, like, not a great guy. Yeah. But a writing... She got her first book published in 1954, which was called The Bird's Nest. But her fifth novel is the one that you were talking about, Chad, The Haunting of Hill House. And that came out in 1954, which is regarded by many as one of the best horror novels ever written. It is an an amazing book. I think if you're looking for shocks and thrills and chills, you might be underwhelmed by that one as well. It's a lot more about mood. And that definitely has some weird fiction elements throughout that are really cool and i know people right now are are watching the netflix adaptation mike flanagan's netflix series which i really liked as well but it's a really loose adaptation i mean it has very little to do with the actual original novel other than some character names and the setting i really think folks uh, that's a good summer read actually that's something that people should be Hmm. picking up unfortunately she suffered from a lot of physical and mental health problems and she died at the age of 48 dude that's two years from now that's Terrible. But she lives on with her writing award uh, that bears her name for outstanding achievements in literature of psychological suspense, horror, and the dark fantastic. So obviously her type of work is what this this award is about. Let's get into the story. Tell me about the possibility of eating. (laughs) It begins with Miss Adela Strangeworth. She's an old lady that lives on Pleasant Street. She loves her roses and her house and her town. Now, what do you think about her being called Strangeworth? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a pretty crazy name. I mean, it made me think about comic books, how people, you know, have weird names before they even get their powers. Dr. Strange, sure. and Otto Octavius, you yeah. know. But, you know, if we're to assume that Shirley Jackson is trying to impart something with this, I guess it's saying this character has a worth, but it's a strange worth. Maybe at the end we can figure out if she actually does have a worth in society or not. But hmm. it's something that the author's asking us to contemplate All right. that name as well. I mean, the fact that she also lives on Pleasant Street. Yeah. There's a lot, you know, this, this, I can see why this gets taught in school. This would be a great introductory short story for literature students to read because some of this stuff might seem obvious to us, sure. but when you're first sort of learning how to decode imagery and think about story, mm-hmm. this would be such, you know, with the roses and Pleasant Street and Strangeworth. These are all things to to think about. There's, there's more going on already. We know than what we're being presented. Right. With. Yeah. I could see that. So it says that strangers, tourists, often ask her for one of her roses because she has these amazing roses that are pink and red and white, uh, but she never shares them. They belong to Pleasant Street. Miss Strangeworth never gave away any of her roses. I like this. It bothered her to think of people wanting to carry them away, to take them into strange towns and down strange streets. Hmm. There's something about that so interesting to me. I mean, clearly we've established that she feels like she owns this town, but also this idea that other towns are strange. I think what she means is strange to me. I don't know them. Yeah. Also that there's something wrong with them, maybe, because they're not her town. Yeah. It's your first indication, I think, that there's something weird going on here. Right. So one day, Miss Strangeworth is walking down the street. It's a sunny, beautiful day, and she chats with everyone she sees on the street. She goes into the grocery store, and she greets and chats everyone there. She talks to the shop owner, Mr. Lewis, has kind of a very boring, polite conversation with him. She gets a a chop and some other items and asks if the fresh strawberries are from Arthur Parker's garden. And they are. 
So it's just showing that she she's in the loop. She knows everything about this town, what's going on, what people are up to. Uh, she then admonishes Mr. Lewis for not reminding her that it's Tuesday, which is the day she always buys her tea. She knows that Mr. Lewis looks worried or maybe distracted. This idea she admonishes him for not... He should recognize that I'm the center of the universe. Yeah. <laughs> kind of is the sentiment you get there. Right. Mr. Lewis looked worried, she thought, and for a minute she hesitated, but then she decided that he surely could not be worried over the strawberries. He looked very tired indeed. Mm -hmm. So right away we're presented with the image of this person as being the most amazing person in the world. You know, this town is great. She's the bedrock of the town. Right. But right away we can see she's a little judgy, a little judgmental. Mm -hmm. She's looking at the way people look. She's thinking that he looks tired. Yeah. Um, there's something dark underneath the surface yeah. here. I was kind of also getting a Twilight Zone vibe because it's remarked about how people are shaking or seem worried when she's talking to them. Mm -hmm. Oh, is this going to be like a thing where she's like that omnipotent kid in that yeah. Twilight Zone episode? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Are people afraid of her or something? You know, what's going on here? Miss Martha Harper comes into the store and she explains that she ran out of sugar for the cake that she's baking. And Mrs. Strangeworth clocks that Mrs. Harper is looking a little rough around the edges. When Mrs. Strangeworth leaves the store, she runs into Don and Helen Crane and their six-month-old baby in a very decked-out carriage. Don and Helen are totally into their baby. They love her to pieces and are very proud of her. Mrs. Strangeworth has some comments. That little girl is going to grow up expecting luxury all her life, she said to Helen Crane. Helen laughed. That's the way we want her to feel, she said. Like a princess. A princess can be a lot of trouble sometimes, Miss Strangeworth said dryly. How old is Her Highness now? Six months next Tuesday, Helen Crane said, looking down with rapt wonder at the child. I've been worrying, though, about her. Don't you think she ought to move around more? Try to sit up, for instance. For plain and fancy worrying, Miss Strangeworth said, amused, give me a new mother every time. She just seems slow, Helen Crane said. Nonsense. All babies are different. Some of them develop just more quickly than others. Mrs. Strangeworth is being very cool here, and she's saying all the right mm. things. I suppose, although she's clearly lacking in empathy a bit, rereading this exchange here, at first it seems like she's being awesome. Yeah. And going, you know, you don't have to worry about it. All children are different. But when I reread it, it just made me a little uneasy. She's just dispensing advice, but she's not saying, oh, I can understand that would bother me too, mm -hmm. or, be, you know, relating to her right. on a human level. No. There's a this edge of judginess about it. Yes. She's keeping herself high up and dispensing yeah. her advice. And she's Miss Strangeworth. We don't know anything about her in terms of, does she have her own family? She references her mother and her grandmother and stuff like that, but has she ever had a child? Well, yeah, her name being Miss, yeah. is she's single in seventy. so even if she was a widow, her name would still be Mrs. Yeah, it, yeah. It's implied that she doesn't have any children of her own and was never married. Right. So on her way back home, she talks to young Billy Moore about riding in his dad's car. She chats with Miss Chandler, the librarian. It says here, Miss Chandler seemed absent-minded and very much as though she was thinking about something else. Miss Strangeworth noticed that Miss Chandler had not taken much trouble with her hair this morning and sighed. Mrs. Strangeworth hated sloppiness. So again, there's that judginess, this time a little harsher than the line. You know, we're kind of building yeah. to this. We get the impression that Mrs. Strangeworth is a little two-faced. You know, she's not, she's keeping the stuff to herself, but she's thinking these things. Maybe she's not really that nice. 
So she notes that many of the people seem disturbed around town, like Linda, who was crying about the Harris boy, but those two ended up showing up together at the soda shop. So whatever their issue was, they've, they've worked it out. At this point, the two-facedness is clear. Everything's got to be just so, or she doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. But we all have met people like this in our life. Sure. It, it just seems like maybe she's a gossip. Yes. Or, and maybe a little too controlling. Yeah. But there's nothing really amiss yet. Not yet. Mrs. Strangeworth walks closer to her house and she can smell the roses before she's even there. And she just loves these roses. And I'm sure that they will have no bearing on anything else in the story. <laughs> you know, as an image, roses might seem a bit obvious, but still it works. And it works really well with the themes of the story because Roses look beautiful, but if you pick one up, they have thorns. They have thorns! Da, da, da. Yes. Looking and smelling great. Okay, appearances are right, but there's something underneath mm. that's that's hurtful. Yes. So she goes to her desk to write some letters, and she has some stationery with Strangeworth House on them, but then she has other stationery that is unmarked colored paper and envelopes. Yeah, when she wants to write some letters, she uses her own stationery. I like that it says she uses that when she felt like writing her other letter, the unmarked colored paper you were talking mm-hmm. about. Well, what, what does that mean? What's the other letter that she writes? Although Miss Strangeworth's desk held a trimmed quill pen and a gold-frosted fountain pen, Miss Strangeworth always used a dull stub of pencil when she wrote her letters. And she printed them in a childish block print. After thinking for a minute... Although she'd been phrasing the letter in the back of her mind all the way home, she wrote on a pink sheet, Didn't you ever see an idiot child before? Some people just shouldn't have children, should they? She was pleased with the letter. She was fond of doing things exactly right. Oh, no. She's horrible. Yeah. That's terrible. And the way it describes that she writes with this blunt pencil and these big block letters, it's almost like these things must look like a ransom letter or something when you get them. You can't tell they're from her. She then writes a letter to Mrs. Harper. It says, Have you found out yet what they were all laughing about after you left the bridge club on Thursday? Or is the wife really the last one to know? So she's a pot stirrer. It's just not sharing gossip. She's making stuff up. Yes, this is the chilling part. It says, Miss Strangeworth never concerned herself with facts. Her letters all dealt with the more negotiable stuff of suspicion. That's some very clear writing. I mean, Shirley Jackson is just telling you this is the deal. Yeah. This woman doesn't really care what's true or not true. I don't I don't want to be too obvious, or maybe I'm being a pot stirrer myself, mm-hmm. but I thought this was so... We, we didn't plan on things ending up this way. No. But after we did the very provocative screwfly solution... Yes at the beginning of the month that reminded me what the internet is like. <laughs> and I got to say, this story is incredibly relevant. I, I think, oh, man, yeah. they better be teaching this even more now because in a way it's about online trolls. Yeah, it is. You know, it's she just likes anonymously stirring things up. Whether it's true or not doesn't really matter. Facts aren't important. No. What's important is suspicion. It, it reminds me when I watch the news, one of my least favorite things is when they ask a question. That they're never going to have to answer. You know? Oh, right. Is the president trying to murder you? <laughs> right. It's like, you. that's not reporting. Anybody no. can just ask a question. Yeah. You know, and the more absurd it is, the more people are going to watch. Yeah. And this is how clickbait works and all these things. You don't really have to present a fact. All you got to do is 
cause a quandary or, or stir something up. Yeah. I mean, this is what the uh, Russian hackers take advantage of. Oh, right? sure. You yeah. know, it was so surprising to me when I found out that aside from all the voting things that were going on in the, in the last election, that they were online stirring things up about The Last Jedi. Well, why would they want to be doing that? And it's like, well, they were doing it because they know that that's a culturally important series of films yeah and if you take some extreme positions on it you're gonna you're just gonna stir the pot people are gonna get upset wow and if people are upset it makes them feel like there's division and if they feel like there's division they're suspicious of their neighbors right it's so that's the evil i think this story is talking about so mr lewis never would have thought his grandson was stealing before he got this letter it said evil existed unchecked in the world it was miss strangeworth's duty to keep her town alert to it she's she keeps repeating that there's only one strangeworth left in town there, there, there were so many wicked people in the world. And for some reason, it, she feels like it's her birthright to, to stamp out wickedness and evil. Yeah. But it also says, besides, Miss Strangeworth liked writing her letters. Oh, so yeah. So it's, it's not just she masks it in the sense of duty. I've got to let people know there's bad stuff happening out there. That's my duty to let people know. But secretly, she relishes this. Of course. For, for whatever reason. Oh, you know. And obviously, it's ridiculous because she is lying so she's making things up that's not finding evil in the world that's no being she's evil. causing the trouble she's yes. not saving anybody from it so she writes another letter this time to mrs foster who was having an operation next month an idea came to her and she selected a blue sheet and wrote you never know about doctors remember they're only human and need money like the rest of us suppose the knife slipped accidentally would Dr. Burns get his fee and a little extra from that nephew of yours? Mm. Oh, man. So nobody needs that. No. Unfortunately, I have known people like this throughout my life. I, I'll call them parade rainers. Um, yeah. You know, whenever you say, hey, I got this cool thing that's going to happen. Uh, somebody's baking a cake for me. You know that cakes uh, have AIDS in them. <laughs> you know, they'll just say something absurd. <laughs> what? They want to ruin whatever you yeah. are happy about. Yeah. I've done a pretty good job of cutting those people out of my life. I don't have any uh, Yeah, of I have too. Yeah. But and, and sometimes you meet one of those people again and you know it mm-hmm. in the first five minutes. You know, they're going to ruin whatever it is yeah. you're going to talk about. <laughs> so she's been writing these letters for a while and sometimes as many as two or three a day, sometimes as few as one a month. Of mm-hmm. course, she never signs them. It's totally anonymous. Mm-hmm. So she writes these letters. She puts the new letters that she's written in her pocketbook, and she's going to take them with her on her evening walk. Says the town where she lived had to be kept clean and sweet, but people everywhere were lustful and evil and degraded and needed to be watched. Mm. The audacity that people have, you know, where they go, I know how things should be. I'm certain of how things should be. Sure. And so now I'm going to tell everybody else that they have to live their lives that way. That's really bothersome to me. So yeah. she eats her lunch, uh, has a nap, then she tidies up a bit, then goes out for her evening stroll. There is only one place that she can mail her letter, and that is the new post office. She has to mail these things secretly, obviously. She timed her walk so she could reach the post office just as darkness was starting to dim the outlines of the trees and the shapes of people's faces. Although no one could ever mistake Miss Strangeworth. I wonder if people do dislike her or if her appearance is so well cupped up that people think, oh, what an old sweetie. I don't know. But yeah, she's got to go mail these anonymous letters right. under the cover of darkness. I think that they respect her because there's this group of children hanging out near the post office. They're very polite to Miss Strangeworth and treat her with respect. Then she goes to the door. She drops off the letters and she hears the voice of Linda Stewart. She's crying. She's talking to Dave. That's the Harris boy. Remember, mm-hmm. something happened between them. She hears her saying to, to Dave, I can't tell you. I just can't. It's just nasty. 
I just wouldn't tell you for anything. You've got to have a dirty, dirty mind for things like that. What did Miss Strangeworth write in this letter? Do you well? Do you think that's Miss Strangeworth? Of doing? course, of course, it's her this doing. Fight they're having. I think for sure, whatever is going on between them is something that she stirred up some kind of implication that maybe yeah. he, he was trying to have sex with her before they got you know before they were married or who know, I don't know right. what, but obviously yeah, we don't know what what it is no, that's going on there. They never but, say. Hmm. But Mrs. Strangeworth's reaction is very creepy. Miss Strangeworth sighed and turned away. There was so much evil in people. Even in a charming little town like this one, there was still so much evil in people. Why is she putting that on those people? They didn't do anything wrong. In fact, you're the one that has caused all these problems, all these this yeah. hurt, and she's so oblivious to that. Miss Strangeworth deposits the letters, but not all of them go in, and one of them falls to the ground. Dave sees this, and he tries to yell to Miss Strangeworth, but she just walks away and doesn't seem to hear him. And he thinks, oh, I guess she's just getting old and her hearing's going yeah. bad. So Dave sees that the letter is addressed to Don Crane. And remember, that's the father of the little baby. Linda tells him to just drop it in the post office. But Dave says, no, I'm going to drop it off because it might be good news. Wouldn't it be nice to give some good news to Don? This is a character in the story who's like a really nice person. Yeah. He says, maybe it's good news for them. Maybe they'll need something happy tonight, too, like us. Sadly, holding hands, they wandered off down the dark street the Harris boy carrying Miss Strangeworth's pink envelope in his hand. What the heck happened to these two? Yeah, they're just having a fight because some dissension was so... <sighs> but we never know. We never know what it's about. Anyway, mm-hmm. this is where the story finishes up. Miss Strangeworth awakened the next morning with a feeling of intense happiness and, for a minute, wondered why. And then remembered that this morning, three people would open her letters. Harsh, perhaps at first, but wickedness was never easily banished, and a clean heart was a scoured heart. Then, going downstairs, reflecting that perhaps a little waffle would be agreeable for breakfast in the sunny dining room, she found the mail on the hall floor and bent to pick it up. A bill, the morning paper, a letter in a green envelope that looked oddly familiar. Miss Strangeworth stood perfectly still for a minute, looking down at the green envelope with the penciled printing and thought, It looks like one of my letters. Was one of my letters sent back? No, because no one would know where to send it. How did it get here? Miss Strangeworth was a Strangeworth of Pleasant Street. Her hand did not shake as she opened the envelope and unfolded the sheet of green paper inside. She began to cry silently for the wickedness of the world when she read the words, Look out at what used to be your roses. Zing! She got doxxed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's... Wow, the, the, she did. The, what do you, why do you think the title of this is The Possibility of Evil? Uh, well, I think because people often think that there might be bad things going on. And mm-hmm. that possibility that my wife, I love her, she's great, I trust her. What if she cheated on me? You know, that possibility of, of something bad going on or that guy that I work with, he's really cool, but maybe he's stealing from me. The possibility, just the suspicion is that possibility. And then that yeah. could drive people to uh, be very unhappy. Yeah, I think about Othello. You know, that's all Iago exactly. does in that play. Yeah. He just says, hmm, I don't like that. 
and it causes a whole chain of events where people die and awful mm-hmm. stuff happens. The possibility, raising these possibilities is the evil yeah. in, in and of itself. Sowing dissent, just trying to make sure that people are concerned about things, whether they're real or not. This idea that she doesn't really concern herself with facts, man. I just thought that was such a brilliant line early on. That's not yeah. the important thing, whether it's true or not. What's important is to make sure that people are suspicious and, and, and thinking about awful things that might happen. Yeah, it is disturbing. It, it's not, again, weird. In fact, it's a little too real. Yeah, I <laughs> was thinking about the phrase, you know, the banality of evil. This is, yes. uh, we, we deal with, uh, which I believe is in reference to the Nazis, right? Because there was just a bureaucratic sort of workaday nature to what the, the awful things that they were doing. That's almost mm-hmm. the most shocking part of it. You know, this isn't, in this show, we're always talking about big monsters and evil plans. And there's a sorcerer who wants to do all these kinds of things. But the truth is, evil in our world is often done by very mundane people sure. uh, in very mundane ways i don't know man this really i just thought it was such an efficient story yeah it was a sh- really short one yeah but it's about so much yeah there's a lot going on in there it, i couldn't stop thinking about it after i read it i mean it took me about 20 minutes to read it 15 minutes and then i thought about it for five hours you know i mean it was just on my mind it's a brilliant story and obviously a good example of why shirley jackson is mm-hmm. amazing y- yeah she continues to go back to these themes in her work two-faced nature you said that right away right two-faced yeah. i mean th- i think this would be so appealing when you um to read if, if you were in say junior high because it's around the time you start learning that about people mm-hmm. that things are just not what they seem yeah. it's a it actually as a story advocates for critical thinking i think all right yeah the idea that just because somebody pre- presents a front that might not be what is really going on behind it and that oftentimes the people who are the worst in the world they're not lizard men they're not you know they're, no they're oh, no. they're very average and it could be a 71 year old town sweetheart actually turns mm-hmm. out to be the one who's absolutely the worst ah oh, man i just i just love this just it's a love great it. story we definitely have to tackle some more shirley jackson yeah we're definitely going to jump into the haunting of hill house at some point i think right now it's a little too hot with the, s- the television series and all that kind of stuff <laughs> Right. Well, I don't know. It's, I haven't seen the television series, so I think it would be good to cover the book before I uh, jump into it. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to it eventually. I want to thank Edward E. French for allowing us to use his full reading. I, I oh say he re- he's reading for us, but he'd already recorded this and had it out. Yes. And I just asked him, hey, can we use excerpts from it? And he said, absolutely. He's such a nice guy. So his work cool. is so good. Please, folks, go check out his YouTube channel. Give this story a, a listen. I love his uh, old New England lady. He's very good at it. Yeah. <laughs> his old church we, lady. If you go to his YouTube page, make sure you subscribe because those are the, the bits that uh, really help folks out. Become a subscriber. Let him know you heard about him here so that hopefully he'll come back and do more of this stuff for us. Yes. You know who else I want to thank are our amazing patrons. Hell yeah. I've got a list of them here, and I'd like to say some of them by name, if I could. Yay! I want to thank Daniel Morgan. I want to thank Andrew Dexter. I'd like to thank Aaron Skinner. I'd like to thank Jay Capone. Sterling Hedrich, you are amazing. Hey, Chris Pragman, you're awesome. Eric Farmer is the bee's knees, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) I want to thank the delightful Richard Sheriff. I want to thank David Frazier. And last but not least, Daniel Dunkley, you are grand. You guys are all so great. Thanks for allowing us to continue to do this show. Because, you know, I, 
I might have gone my whole life and never read the story if we weren't doing this show. This is a gift you've given to Chris and I. So you really you. have. Thank you yeah, so much. Absolutely. I appreciate it. And hopefully we're giving a gift to you because maybe you never would have read this story and now you're going to go read it and enjoy it as much as we did. As we learned in Beowulf, it's a gift-giving economy. <laughs> we're all giving <laughs> gifts to each other. That's all we got for you this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. Ah!